You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Today is a special day. If you've been with us, you know that we are starting the book of Exodus today. So uh, we're going to the Old Testament. We've done Mark and the book of Philippians before, and today starts the, a new season in our church. We are going to be systematically going through the book of Exodus. Uh, it may look different than Mark or Philippians in that the amount of scripture that we may do every week may differ and change. Sometimes we may be doing like, whole, like many chapters in one Sunday. We'll have to figure out how to do that. But uh, I really believe that God desires to do a deep, rich work in our church and that he's led us to the book of Exodus at this time. And so uh, I want to read one verse from actually chapter 15, almost the middle of the book to start off, then I'll pray. But uh, I have it on PowerPoint here, Exodus 15, 13. Give the context in a little bit, but it says, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active and it's profitable for teaching and correcting and training us in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. And Lord, if there's anything that we can pray as we start this this book that you preserved for us and your people is that, God, we want what you want out of it for us. We ask that your will would be done, that Holy Spirit, that you would minister to us each and every week the truths of, of God's word. God, let us be reminded of your faithfulness and your goodness over millennia to your people, and let it dig deep into our own lives in 2019 that you are the same God. You're the same God that rescued your people out of slavery and part of the Red Sea is the same God that can do it in our own lives. As you do that, Lord, give you this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've heard our story or not, uh, specifically how Reality Honolulu came to be, uh, it started with my wife and I really through prayer, through dreams, through like people telling us, through years of uh, hearing God saying, you know, this is what I have for you to start a church in Hawaii. And one of the very first times we came, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know anything like to navigate ourselves around town. We actually were staying on the North Shore with a friend of ours and Every single day, we didn't tell anybody what we were doing because it was super secret at the time. Uh, we were praying about it, didn't know what to think of it. We would drive into town. We like literally were staying on the beach uh, on V-Land, like on the beach. And every single day, we would tell our friends, hey, we're going to town, we're going to town, we're going to town. People were like, you're crazy. What are you doing? Why are you going to town? You're on the North Shore. But that trip, I remember we were praying about like starting a church in Honolulu, and it was kind of the worst trip ever. We went into it going, God's just going to open doors and he's going to bring favor and like we're going to feel like this love for the city and like everything and everything's going to happen. Open doors. And it was like absolutely the opposite. I remember getting lost, like couldn't park, 
didn't get the ticket validated. It was expensive. There was like, it was like crazy trade winds that day. And for me, whatever, I don't know, if it gets really windy and I'm like lost and like I'm, it just does not a good situation. I don't know. I just get confused. I was feeling so overwhelmed. Um, I'm not like a city guy. I'm like more of a country guy. So town is like the New York City to me, honestly. Um, I know you're like, yeah, yeah, but it, it is. Um, I'm not a townie by nature, but I'm called to be a townie, so I'm in. I'm in. But I remember uh, at the time, my wife was, you know, Zoe was pregnant with our almost six-year-old. She was six months pregnant. You know, it just, it just compounded everything, everything that's happening. And I felt like I had forgotten all that God had told us up to that point. Circumstances, the wind, wife being pregnant, getting lost. I feel like I forgot it all. And I remember, I, I remember being like, Oh, actually, it was Zoe that said this. Hey, I'm glad we haven't told too many people because we can just ditch it now. <laughs> we can just, just ditch this whole church in Hawaii thing. That's what she said. I'm really glad that we, don't, we hadn't tell many people because we can just bury this thing. But I remember going, no, 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 we have to pray about this. But this is why we're here. We have to do it. And I remember asking somebody, like, hey, where can we get like a bird's eye view of, of, of town? Like, I don't even know what I'm doing I just need to go see it from like, I just need to get out of town, to be honest, but I want to see it still. People are like, oh, go up Tantalus, and there's a park up there, and so you guys know the park, and um, that you can go up, and there's like an amazing, you know, at least 180 degree view of like all of town, Diamond Head to like the airport. And I remember for the first time being able to like see a bird's eye view and stop for a moment, and because I had the big picture, because I was able to step away and and see it from a distance, I began to like recall and be reminded of all that God had told me and done up to that moment. And I began to recall his goodness and his faithfulness. And I remember telling Zoe, it's like, I, we feel the way we do, but I believe that Jesus is calling us to do this. And if he's calling us to do it, we got to do it. But it became clear as I began to step away and be reminded of all that God had did and God had done and get a bird's eye view, a big picture of what God was doing. And for me, I seem to fail to recall the big picture and the past of what God has done all too often. Right? God does these amazing things. He had really done amazing things, but all of a sudden, like a storm came you know, a trial, something happened, and all of a sudden, just forgot it. And this is why, this is exactly why studying the book of Exodus is so important for us. Because it's so important that we remember the past. We, we remember the big picture. We look back at the, as the people of God to how God in the past has moved in the people of God. We have to recall the works of our God, what he's done before, so it gives us the faith and courage and boldness in the midst of what we're going through now. The moment that we fail is the moment that we crumble. I've experienced that more often than not. And so for me, I'm so excited to look at Exodus because for Exodus is one of the most important books and stories of the whole Bible. So much of the Bible actually is referring back to the account in Exodus, what God did and how he moved. And so much of Israel refers back to this in scripture, in tradition, even to this day. 
goes back to the account of God rescuing his people out of slavery and parting the Red Sea and giving them the Ten Commandments and the law and instructions for the tabernacle, how they could worship their God. Everything is, is going, coming back to the story of Exodus. This is uh, part of the Pentateuch, part of the first five books of the Bible, and it's the second of, of the first five. It's written by Moses, if you didn't know that. He's our main character. He's our mediator that God uses uh, to speak through and free his people. And it's important, though, to understand that Exodus, like most books, if not all books of the Bible, are not intended to exist separately. Um, but specifically, Exodus is a continuation of the narrative of the book of Genesis, and it's really completed or rounded out with Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But Exodus is picking up where Genesis left off. It's been about 400 years since Genesis left off um, when Joseph and the children of Israel, and they've grown, Joseph has died, a new Pharaoh has come, Israel has multiplied, they've been fruitful and multiplied, and there's, there's tons of Israelites living in Egypt, but it's not the same as when Joseph was at the helm, and all of Israel had favor with Pharaoh. It's a different Pharaoh. It's a different time. And for 400 years, the children of Israel have been oppressed. They've been in slavery. They're under a new leadership, and times have dramatically changed. And so from when we left off in Genesis to where we pick up in Exodus, not only has 400 years passed, but they've been a really, really bad 400 years. Yes, they've multiplied. Yes, they've grown. Yes, they've had families. And yes, they're living together. But it's under a very oppressive rule. And in a nutshell, if you haven't read Exodus, if to, to codify it a bit, in a nutshell, this is what Exodus is. Again, today being kind of an introduction to Exodus, this is part of it. But this is what Exodus is. Exodus is the second book of the Old Testament following the book of Genesis. The book of Exodus describes how the Israelites free slavery in Egypt through the might of Yahweh, their God, who has chosen the Israelites as his people. Guided by Moses, they travel through the desert to Mount Sinai, where Yahweh promises them the land of Canaan as a reward for their devotion. Israel then joins into a covenant with God who gives them sovereign laws and directions to build the tabernacle. Exodus plays a crucial role in setting the stage for later events of the Bible to unfold. This is the book of Exodus. This is what we're going to look at for the next who knows how long. I'm literally not sure how long this is going to take to teach this. But you guys know it. If you've seen The Prince of Egypt, most of you, if you grew up in church, like a lot of people know the book of Exodus, right? Moses in the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, all that stuff. The, the big overarching ideas in the book of Exodus, to kind of look at it from a 30,000 foot view, is really freedom from oppression, the forming of a new community, uh, it's giving instructions of how to live in this new community as God's people, and it's instructions for how God's people ought to worship, specifically in the tabernacle, which would then become the temple later on. But we also see, not only do we see these themes throughout God doing these things through his people and in his people, and we're going to see over the next, you know, However many months, over 40 chapters, these things take place. But also, we see the attributes of God. 
What Exodus does is it lays a, a foundational theology of which God reveals his name, his attributes, his redemption, his law, and how he is to be worshipped. It really lays some groundwork for us as the church and the people of God and for, for the children of Israel, how we ought, who he is, his name, his attributes, his redemption, his law, and how we are to worship. And throughout this book, I mean, there's a lot of really um, amazing things that we'll see when it pertains to who God is, his character, and his attributes. We'll see incredible testimonies of God's power, God's mercy, his justice, his provision, manna every day for 40 years, God's exclusivity, gathering his people. We'll see God's goodness. We'll see God's holiness. And we'll see very vividly testimonies of God's glory in the midst of humanity. The book of Exodus is so rich. And when you're reading it, there, there is a lot happening, but if you're going to break it down, you'd break it into chapters 1 through 18 and chapters 19 through 40. It just breaks down well, and there's reasons for that. But in the past, if you've been with us, I like to show you videos from time to time when we start a new book. They're videos by this uh, nonprofit called The Bible Project. You guys have showed them. I showed you guys Philippians and Mark. They're these cool animated videos describing what these books of the Bible are. So I'm going to show you right now the video from chapters 1 through 18. And again, it's in a very cool animated way telling you in general what the book of Exodus is about, specifically the first part that we'll be in for who knows how long. So here we go. Uh, Genesis 1, 1 through 18, Bible Project video on Exodus. which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. 
Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. 
And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites, they're trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. Cool video, right? So we'll look at 19 through 40 when that comes. But what Exodus is, is the account of redemption from bondage, leading to consecration in covenant and the formation of God's tabernacle on the earth. This is what the book of Exodus is. It's the account of redemption from bondage leading to consecration in covenant with God and the formation of God's tabernacle, the way in which we're to worship God on earth. But what we'll see, why this matters, is that the story of Israel and the Exodus from Egypt is our story. It's also our story. This is why recalling and remembering the Exodus account is so powerful because it's analogous with our own lives. See, Egypt is synonymous with our own sin. It's impicted that way. Freedom from Egypt can be related to salvation from our own sin, from our own bondage. And in the same way that we will see that God will save Israel, God too miraculously has saved us out of bondage or slavery from sin and in the same way, the same way that he does for the children of Israel. So when we read this, we see Pharaoh and he's a slave master, but we should also see, wow, we were enslaved to a slave master and it was sin. It was our own selfish, independent nature. And the book of Exodus, the story of Exodus, God saving his people out of bondage is also our story of God saving us out of sin. That's why it's so important that we remember and recall what God has saved us out of and what he's saving us to and into. This idea of redemption or salvation is is powerfully set forth in the book. Um, this idea of redemption is, is throughout it. You, you've seen the verb a lot. You, you see it portrayed. And at the heart of this redemption theology is the Passover narrative from Exodus 12 that we just saw in the video. It's the sealing of the covenant with his people in chapter 24 that we'll get. It's the account of God's gracious renewal to that covenant when Israel is unfaithful to their worship to a golden calf after all that went on. Even at the end of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 34, we see God's redemptive faithfulness to his people. And even Paul, even in the New Testament, spoke of this. Right? The apostle Paul viewed the death of the Passover lamb was that that it was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That the Passover lamb is, is Christ upon the cross. 
that God saves us from our sin. He takes the wrath and he puts it upon Christ. And so Christ is our Passover lamb. Just like in Exodus 12, how the pure spotless lamb, which we'll see, was put over the doorpost and God spared the children of Israel. Christ is our Passover lamb that we've been spared from God's wrath. And even John the Baptist, right, this crazy guy in the wilderness baptizing people, John chapter 1, verse 29, he sees Jesus coming, and what does he call him? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This idea of the Passover Lamb is met and completed and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But it's narrated, it's started, it's portrayed first with the children of Israel. In the core, at the core of the account of Exodus is the core of our own redemptive narrative. That's why it's so important that we look back and are reminded of what God did and what God has done. Because the same God that we see save the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, is the same God who saved us out of our own slavery. And the phrase, if you like phrases to hold on to, that we're going to use as a framework for the entirety of this book and this study, is brought out to be brought in. This idea that we're brought out of something, we're saved out of our sin, we're saved from eternal separation from God, we're saved from hell. But not only that, we're brought into a covenant relationship with our God. We're welcomed into the family of God. We're adopted in. We're grafted in as children of God. We have the hope of eternity. And we have abundant life here and now. And so the story of Exodus is this idea of being brought out and being brought in. See, we too are now grafted in as God's people. And we too, just like the children of Israel will receive the Ten Commandments and the law and instructions how to live differently than the rest of the world, we too have the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and we too are to live differently than the world. Those that don't know Christ and aren't redeemed and aren't saved, our lives are to look different. We're to live differently in the midst of a rebellious and wicked world, just like the children of Israel were. And this is what we'll see and experience in the book of Exodus. It's deliverance and it's freedom and it's covenant relationships. This idea of freeing and delivering out of slavery and being brought in and established as God's family and God's chosen people is is true of Israel and it's true of us. The Exodus story is our story. This is us. Even though it's thousands of years ago in a different context with a different people under different, in a different nation, this is our story. So when we read this and study it, know that this is analogous to our spiritual walks and our spiritual lives and how we, too, were redeemed from our sin. Amen? And the verse I started with this morning was a verse from that worship song, Exodus chapter 15, Song of the Sea. This is Moses and his wife Miriam, and they sing a song of worship at this time about Two and a half million or so Israelites, men, women, and children. This is a big worship. This is a big time. God has just miraculously parted the Red Sea. He's freed them from 400 years of oppressive slavery. I have no idea even how to comprehend how good that felt. 
I'm a white guy that grew up in America. I know nothing about this. But can you imagine the children of Israel for 400 years? I mean, think about your ancestors. How far back do you know? Less than 400 years, probably. All that they've known, their whole family tree, everything has been slavery, bondage, under an oppressive rule. And finally, God comes through on his word. He hears his people. He lets them go. Miraculously, they're saved. Parting of the Red Sea happens. And what do the, what do the people of God do? They don't just keep going. They don't just quickly thank him. They stop, all two and a half million of them, and they sing a song of praise to their God immediately after the parting of the Red Sea out of slavery in Egypt. And what I want to do is I actually want to read the entirety of this. There's 18 verses. Again, I'm not going to sing it. Sorry, that's my wife's job. That's not me. I'm not going to sing it. But this is a worship song unto the Lord on behalf of, to God, on behalf of what God just did. Before I get into it, Exodus 15, verses 1 through 18, I have it on the screen or you can turn there. But again, I want this to be our story. I want this to be our, our song. And as we enter into this season as our church, I pray that worship like this would well up for the, for the parting of our Red Seas that God does, for the faithfulness that he comes through in our life. So let's read uh, Moses and Miriam's worship song to the Lord. Exodus 15 says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them, but you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you, you will lead the people you have redeemed. And in your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be still a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you, you bought pass by. You will bring them and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. 
I believe the Lord wants to show us his power this season. He wants to show us his re redemption in our lives, in our families. He wants us to experience freedom and deliverance from sin. And he wants us truly to walk in newness of life as God's people and God's family. And so church, in the start of this new season, I want us to be excited and anticipate that the same God who parted the Red Sea is the same God who is with and near to us now. Amen? Amen. Let's worship. God, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as your word says, you are the God that by your unfailing love lead us that we're your people who you have redeemed, and it's your strength that will guide us to your holy dwelling. And thank you, Lord, that through your son that you have made a way that now we can boldly approach the throne of grace, that we, your people, can be in your presence, that there is nothing separating us from worshiping you now. So God, we do, we worship you for who you are and what you've done in our own lives, in our family's life, in our communities, in the world. You're the God that so loved the world that sent your only son that died in our place so that whoever should believe would not perish but have everlasting life. Eternity isn't long enough to worship you. So God, now we want to turn what you've spoken to us into praise. You are worthy and deserving of it.